says, it's such a lovely wedding. You look so beautiful. Um, when are you getting married? Um, I'm sure the Lord has someone out there for you. Or perhaps you're a bloke and you're hanging out with your mates one night and after your friends are all chatting about the, you know, the highs and lows of having a girlfriend or a wife, they turn to you and they ask, so when are you going to get hitched? Or maybe you're a single parent who's had their spouse abandon you and your friends keep pressuring you. They keep saying, look, it's been several years now. You should really put yourself back out there. Do it for yourself and for the kids. Or maybe you're at a family dinner and, um, and you hear your, uh, you hear your uncle speaking to your aunt in the kitchen. You overhear them saying, I've never seen him with a girlfriend. Is he gay or something? Today we're dealing with a sensitive topic, Christian singleness. We're dealing, we're going to look at this peculiar thing that is often not very well represented in our community or in our churches. And it's something that can be very painful to us. Something that really touches on, um, you know, pain in our life or past hurt or, or, or grief. Especially for the person who is not single by choice. So I hope that as, as we touch on these things this morning, I hope that we can do it in a way that understands both the intensely personal nature of the topic and, and the way that the scripture speaks to it. And I can, I, I can own up to it now. I'm inevitably going to say something that comes out wrong this morning, or, uh, I say something in a way that is, is hurtful to you. And if that's the case, I ask that you would forgive me now ahead of time, knowing that, um, we're Christian brothers and sisters. I hope you can um, bear with me in my uh, weakness as I speak, try to speak on the topic. And uh, feel free to come and chat about these things. These things are not uh, things that need to be swept under the carpet or ignored. These are things we can chat about. So feel free to come and chat about where you're at in life. Or if you feel like I've misrepresented singleness, then come and have a talk to me later. We're a spiritual family. We're in this together. And hiding our pain won't help us. Now, this is just a one-off sermon. You remember we've been doing a couple uh, topical sermons over the past couple weeks. Steve will be back next week and we will dive into Exodus together and I'm looking forward to that. But until then, you're stuck with Samuel the Sniffly Elder. So, <laughs> as we work through this topic, I hope, uh, I, if you're not single, this isn't a chance for you to switch off for half an hour because this is something that affects us, this affects us all. It's an important issue for the church everywhere. If you're part of the church, you need to be aware of Christian singleness. You need to be able to minister to your friends and family members who are single. You need to avoid holding up marriage as the ultimate uh, example of human experience. And you need to be able to, to teach other people, like your kids, that marriage is not the only option for Christian adulthood. In fact, I hope that as we leave this service this morning, I want us to all understand that Christian singleness is an honourable and God-pleasing option for life. So I'll just say that again. So Christian singleness is an honourable and God-pleasing option in life. And I think this is especially important for us to hear at Eastgate because, you know, we're in the middle of a phase where uh, we have had two weddings in the last two weeks and we know that there's uh, at least one more wedding on the horizon. Uh, it's a time when there's bridal showers and talk about marriage and celebrating marriage. And we can implicitly 
if not, you know, usually not deliberately, but we can implicitly imply that, um, that, that marriage is better or um, that, that if we're not in marriage, we're, we're missing out on something. Um, we can feel like second-class citizens. And the last thing we need is for the singles amongst us to feel like we are uh, in a mere transitional phase of life or that we are leftovers from all the other matchmaking that seems to go on. So I suppose the next question that arises is, who are we talking about when we're talking about Christian singles? This incorporates Christians who are single because uh, they have decided that marriage is not for them. It's by choice, because of a lack of opportunity. They haven't found somebody, or through circumstances of life, they haven't been able to date or marry. You imagine you're a, a young single bloke and you are working out on a cattle station in the middle of nowhere for several years, and you don't meet any other Christian ladies for years. Or maybe they're single by abandonment. Their spouse has left them or treated them in such a way that they are unable to live with them, like they've been abused or something. Um, They might be single by the death of a spouse. They may have been widowed. Uh, Those who were married but had their spouse taken by death, sometimes it's sudden, sometimes it's been a long time coming through illness. Uh, Or maybe you're single because of um, the way that you were born. You may have suffered an injury or perhaps because of mental state. It just... The circumstances of life have left somebody in a, in a state where they're unable to fulfill the role of husband or wife due to um, physical or mental inability. Now, I'm fully aware that this list covers a huge range of people and, and because of that, it's going to be difficult to kind of address the individual um, circumstances that Christian singles find themselves all over the place. But hopefully as we work through this, we can kind of hit the broad brush of things um, and, uh, yeah, have a, have a better understanding of Christian singleness at the end. Um, and I suppose the breadth of this proves the point that this is an important topic that we need to talk about um, because there's a lot of people who fit in these categories. And if you don't fit in these categories now, there's a high likelihood that you either were in these categories in the past or you will be in the future. So it affects all of us. I wanted to start with a brief history of humanity. Let's, let's, let's get ourselves in a bit of a mindset about what it means, what, what, how God designed the human race. And if we can be in, in that mindset, we can be better placed to understand what Christian singleness looks like. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything that exists. And as part of that creation, he made man and woman. Now, he made man before woman. Not because, um, not because men are better than women, but he did it to make a point about how men and women complement each other. And in some kind of weird object lesson, God got Adam to go and look through all of the animals he had made to look for a helper, to look for somebody to be a companion. And obviously, uh, Adam didn't find any, any companion in the midst of the animal kingdom. And he made it to prove the point that that companionship and mutual love aren't found anywhere else other than in um, the, the humanity that God has made. And after God had made them, he blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and everything that moves on the earth. So you have this picture where mankind was created in a space where they were made for each other, they were commissioned to be fruitful, um, 
multiply, fulfill the earth and have dominion over the earth. And so naturally, we see that the family tends to be something that is seen at the centre of this. If you're multiplying and filling the earth, if you're being fruitful, it would most naturally seem to take place in the context of families, um, men and women coming together in marriage and having kids. And that's even seen in the promises to Abraham. God gave him a promise that he would have a multitude of offspring, as many as the stars in the sky. And this puts Abraham's family and his children's families at the center of God's promises to multiply and be fruitful. And so both in the culture of the ancient Near East and in the promises of God, singleness doesn't even seem to get a mention. It's not even, it's not even a thing. It wasn't seen as positive or helpful. In the mind of the Israelite, the family unit was the way to fulfill the commission of God, the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And on top of that, their agrarian society didn't lend itself to singleness being an option. You needed to raise up the next generation to provide for your family. You needed to have kids so that there was people to look after you when you got older or to work the land so that you could all eat. With a, with modern, uh, without modern medicine, sickness and injury would take many lives. And so many children ensured that people would survive to continue the family line. And we even see that there was curses placed on people who wouldn't um, go out and help um, raise up the next generation. There was... What's his face? I can't remember his name. Who refused to um, refused to um, take his his wife, his brother's wife, and, and and help her have a child. So, children were a sign of fruitfulness, and marriage was essential to seeing fruitfulness promoted in families and communities and in the nation. And those who chose not to marry would have been seen as as hurting the family. But then we get to this point in Israel's history, we get to Jesus. And Jesus does this weird thing where he starts to to turn everything so that we see everything through a different perspective. And while God had been displaying his love and his work through the people of Israel, we saw that that was actually a picture of what he was going to do in the church universal. And we see that through Christ, it's not so much about an ethnic group of people in in a land, but it's about God's kingdom people from all tribes and nations and tongues coming into God's kingdom, who is a spiritual kingdom, not just an earthly kingdom. In this new paradigm, in this new pattern, fruitfulness and multiplication isn't just related to getting married and having kids. Fruitfulness and multiplication happens through the spreading of God's kingdom, people coming into God's kingdom and it growing uh, in, in that way, not just by marriage and kids. we see how God's promises about having a multitude of offspring was not limited to physical descendants, but includes anyone who belongs to Jesus. And even at Pentecost, we saw that the multiplication happening exponentially as thousands of people came into Christ's kingdom in one day. Through Jesus, we see that God's kingdom is one where you can be fruitful and multiply without the need for spouse or kids. And we have the prime example of Jesus and Paul who were single men who established God's church on earth, both of whom were faithful to God, both of whom were fruitful and multiplied God's kingdom. Kind of the two kind of people who we would chiefly look at when we talk about the New Testament, you know, is is the three are Peter, um, sorry, Jesus, Peter and Paul as these kind of three figureheads in the New Testament and two of them weren't married. 
So this is the lens I want us to approach this topic through. It's not a matter of choosing to marry to fulfill God's creation mandate. Now fruitfulness and multiplication can be clearly achieved through the single life. In fact, Paul goes on to say that it's even preferable to the Christian to stay single so that they can be better positioned to serve God and his kingdom. This is a crazy notion for an ancient context. And we're going to look more at Paul's advice in a moment, but I want this to sink in. If God's mandate to humanity is to be fruitful and multiply, and that command takes on a new meaning through Jesus, then singleness is an honorable and God-pleasing option in life. It's not a shameful thing to desire to serve God more than marriage. It's not a bad thing to forgo spouse and kids in order to see more people come to become children of God. We're still created with desires for love and intimacy, but putting those human desires aside in celibacy is an honourable and God-pleasing option for the Christian life. Whether we consciously choose the life of singleness or, or whether we are forced into it by circumstances, it's not as though we are failing to live out our full humanity, as long as we are seeking to live out our, our single life and use this estate for God's glory. Let's have a look at Paul's argument for singleness, which we read before in the passage. We read sections of a much longer passage where Paul deals with extra issues about marriage and kids and all kinds of stuff. But because today we're focusing on the Christian singleness, I'm kind of going to be uh, hopping through the passage. But this passage is from uh, the letter to the Corinthians, as Paul mentioned This Paul, not the Apostle Paul. Paul, the Apostle, wrote to help the Corinthian church sort out some of the issues. They had some crazy stuff going on in their church, stuff that, you know, we would just, we would just not believe if it was happening here, but, but Paul called them saints and he, um, and he loved them and he told them to sort out these things. There was crazy stuff like, um, a bloke sleeping with his mother-in-law. There was, there was stuff where there were married people who were saying it's better to, to, to not be intimate together. Um, and so he's got different extremes uh, in, in, on the marriage uh, and um, celibacy front that he has, is trying to deal with. Paul wrote to address people in different situations. He said, if you're married, act like married people, have regular sex. If you're not married, don't. If you're married, stay married. If you're single, feel free to stay single, but... You're not doing anything wrong if you do get married. In fact, Paul says it's probably better not to be married so that you can avoid the complications that spouses and families bring. So if you just read with me uh, from from verse 6 and not to 6 to 9, he says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So from the outset, we see that that Paul considers your marital estate a gift. Whether you are married or not, it's a gift from God. And uh, we shouldn't return uh, a gift uh, that God has given us. He doesn't say um, that you must do one or the other, but he thinks singleness in his, in his, uh, in his in his preference, is a better option. Paul also understands that our human drive, uh, we have a human drive for sexual intimacy. So he says, if you desire a spouse, 
you can go ahead and enjoy that marriage relationship, but do it in the confines of marriage as God intended. And Paul goes on to give some instructions about marriage and divorce. If we skip down, um, he talks about living content in the place God lives you, gives you in life. In verse 17, he says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. He goes on and makes a bit of an argument about, you know, if you're circumcised, you know, you don't, don't try and get uncircumcised, or if you're not circumcised, don't try and take on circumcision. If you're married, when you become a believer, and your spouse is a non-believer, don't feel like you have to leave them. You stay with them as long as they are willing to have you. He says, live as you're called. But there's nothing wrong with taking on freedom if, if you're a slave and if your opportunity comes up to take on your freedom, or if, uh, um, or if you're single and an opportunity comes along to get married, you can take those. And looking down a little bit further, Paul starts speaking to engaged couples. In their society, once you're engaged or betrothed, as the, as the, as the language is, you're kind of technically married. So like, betrothal is this period where you're married but you're not married yet. Where you're, you're destined for each other, you belong to each other, but you haven't actually come together as husband and wife yet. And Paul says, look, based on the circumstances, it's probably better not to get married. Because at that time, Paul was writing to them, they might have been in the middle of a a persecution or, or a famine. And he says, look, based on the circumstances, it's probably wiser to refrain from marriage. And I can sure you can see the wisdom in this. You know, there's, there's a time and a place for, um, for, for marriage and kids, and sometimes it's better just to avoid it all. Um, just have a look at verse 25 with me. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free for a wife, from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and a betrothed, if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. I'm sure you could see how this is applicable, like, straight to us. If we were in the midst of persecution, or if we were in, in poor circumstances where each other's lives are at risk, marriage and children would end up causing more sorrow than happiness. And so it would be better just to avoid it. Along with this, we've got to remember that our citizenship is of heaven. We're not here to build up our own empires and legacies, but Christ's. The day of the Lord is at hand. This present world is passing away, and our relationships need to represent that. We must be ready to take it or leave it um, for the sake of the kingdom. The present form of this world is passing away. And Paul continues to uh, build his case of singleness from verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So basically, Paul is saying, look, marriage distracts. Marriage divides our attention. 
The married person is worried about providing for the other, caring for the other, making sure there's a roof over the head of the family. Um, do we have everything we need? Are we happy? Will we have food to eat next week? There is time involved in building relationship and caring for one another. There is stress involved with having the practicalities of life weigh on your conscience, which is multiplied by the inclusion of children in the scenario. Now, it's not as if singles don't have to worry about food and shelter and relationships, but marriage adds to this, adds to this um, anxiousness. It, It could be said that there are some aspects of marriage which are burdensome, and not in a bad way, but there are burdens that you can avoid if you avoid marriage. Whereas on the other hand, Paul says the single individual is able to have their undivided attention focused on pleasing the Lord and working out how to be holy in body and spirit. See, Christian singleness is an is an honourable and God-pleasing option in life that you can free up you to that can free you up to seek holy and spiritual things in a way that the married person cannot. See, Paul, Paul wants to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Let's finish out our passage from verse 36. It says, if anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed or if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It's no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control and has determined in his heart to keep her as his, as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So to finish off his thoughts on singleness, Paul essentially says, do whatever you can manage. If you Get married if you really want, but if you can live without it, you're doing pretty good. And that's pretty applicable straight to our own situation. If you're single and you want to be married, don't be ashamed to seek out marriage. It's not sin. Feel free to look for a Christian spouse, to get along, uh, to to visit other churches, to meet other Christians, um, to, um, yeah, to to go out and 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 go to places where you can meet and find other Christian singles. If that's what you desire, it's no guarantee that God will give you a spouse, but you are free to seek that out. However, if you're content to remain single, do it. It won't be easy, but you'll be free from many anxieties that others face. You'll be free to focus on pleasing the Lord and working out how to be holy in body and spirit because Christian singleness is an honourable and God-pleasing option for this life. It can free you up to seek holy spiritual things in the way that the married person cannot. And Paul wants to promote good order to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So even if you're unwillingly single, I encourage you to embrace an attitude that puts serving God and his people at the centre. Think about Ruth. She was widowed and she went on to serve um, God and Naomi. She worked and she loved and she served without any hope of remarriage or reward. And, And in her case, by the grace of God, she was able to get remarried. But this won't necessarily be the case for everyone. You might be like Anna in the temple. She faithfully served God for many years. She she was widowed uh, seven years into her marriage and she made remained single until she was 84 and met the baby Jesus at the temple. 
She did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. She was wholly devoted to the Lord. So I encourage you, each person lead the life that God has assigned to him or her and to which God has called him or her. Embrace it. Work out the issues that come up and work it out with each other. Seek to please God through the joy and tears of the struggle. Now, it's often said that marriage is a sanctifying work. People joke about it. Um, but that's not to, it should be noted that singleness is no less sanctifying. It's just that it's a different set of circumstances that God is sanctifying us in. It's a different set of parameters that God uses to work on our hearts. It brings its own typical issues that need to be worked through. And so many of these things that I'm about to talk about are very real and painful matters that don't often see the light of day. And when they do come up, the single person might feel guilty about having these these issues that they need to work with. So don't despair. These things I'm about to talk about are part of normal human existence. Uh, If you're married, be aware that your single friend or family member might be dealing with one or many of these issues. So let's look at a few of these common ones. Singleness can be lonely. We feel as if we're condemned to be alone forever, not having someone to share our life experiences with or grow old with. The feeling of loneliness can lead us to isolate ourselves from people as a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. And you can feel isolated from friends and family who all seem to be in a completely different world to you. You can just feel left out. Or there's grief, especially for the widow and widower who will probably never fully get over the grief that they feel for a lost loved one. But there's also the grief of lost potential. We can grieve over things that we thought we were going to have, hopes and dreams that we had that won't be fulfilled. If, we've, if you've always dreamed about having um, the, the spouse and the kids, you might be grieving as you come to terms with the idea that you might never have those hopes and dreams fulfilled. There's self-esteem. The single person might be dealing with, with feelings of self-consciousness or low esteem. It's only natural to wonder that if your spouse left you, Or if all your other friends are married, you you wonder, is there something wrong with me? Am I the cause of this? Is it my personality? Is it the way I look? And this this can in turn lead to obsession with body image or, um, you know, always being trying to be over the top friendly to everybody so that you don't, don't, nobody is able to reject you. There's also issues with identity and direction. If you've always dreamed about having a spouse or if your spouse was there but then is gone, you have to come to terms with the idea that, that your hopes and dreams for life are no longer able to be fulfilled and you have to take on a new identity, a new direction. Your plans might come crashing down around you and this, you, you might take on a stigma of being, of, you know, being the, the older unmarried person or the person whose spouse left them and it's something that we need to deal with. Now, I'm not in this situation of singleness, but at the moment I'm dealing with with what my identity will be like in the future. The the issue that Laura and I are working through is is childlessness. And so we have to deal with the problem of our identity. What's our identity and direction in the future? If we always thought we were going to be parents, but that's not going to be an option, how, how are we going to work with this? What is life going to be like in our later years? How are we going to... Um, how are we going to serve God through this? 
Another uh, issue that needs to be worked through is sex. In singleness, it's hard to deal with good sexual desires because God gave us those desires. And so the single person has to figure out how to keep their passions in check. And this can be an ongoing thing that's problematic over many years, especially um, especially if you are uh, dealing with same-sex attraction. This will be something that you will have to work through as you seek to live a celibate life. We have to learn to seek to honour God's laws and train our body to turn away from unholy expressions of sexuality. Also, we've got anger. It's easy when we believe that God is in control to point the finger and say, God, you are causing this. God, you are um, you're making life hard for me. And we, we build up resentment towards God. So we've got to deal with anger. We've got to deal with fear. We can have a fear that we will lose out in life, that our life won't be as good as others. Or we, we might be dealing with a fear that we will disappoint our parents. Um, we might we we might have fear of uh, being alone forever. And we also have to deal with things like regret, especially for the person who has deliberately chosen singleness. They might in their later years look back and go, oh, I wish I'd made a different decision. They might regret uh, cutting off romantic relationships, thinking, oh, if, I'd, if I gave that boyfriend one more chance, maybe things would have worked out. So there's regret, but there's also something else. And I think this is probably the one that um, our society needs to deal with the most, and that's selfishness. There's potential for singleness to be a product of selfishness, especially when, as for our society as a whole, intimacy... Um, is, is something that we think we can we can pick up and drop uh, with the with the flick of a thumb on a phone. Um, why bother investing in relationships when you can try and kind of have your cake and eat it too? You can have your selfish desires of living life your way, but then kind of um, try and pick up the benefits of marriage on the side. Or we can just be thinking, I just want to pursue my own career and I just want to do what I want. I don't want to be tied down. I don't want to have to worry about anybody else. And so what might appear on the surface to be a very spiritual thing of choosing Christian singleness might under the surface just be an excuse to be selfish. So these are some things that we have to think through in regards to singleness. Living the celibate life will not be easy. We have to be aware of the potential pitfalls along the way, beware of where our friends are at when they're dealing with these issues. But as we come into these things and we think about these things, we need to think about where our heart is at. Because sometimes we might be experiencing these things, but we're dealing with them because we have a heart of thankfulness or we are, we are you know, trying to please the Lord and so we're trying to deal with these things in a God-honoring way even as we, as we struggle through them. But I want to I ask you where your heart is at. We, we can acknowledge that Christian singleness is an honourable, God-pleasing option for life, but it might be, uh, it might not be, it might not be something that we actually take hold of. We know that that nothing will satisfy us like Christ. We know He is the truest and best desire, and nothing can eclipse Christ. We know that that desiring and seeking after Christ is better than anything this earthly relationships can give us. But has the knowledge kind of sunk into to us? Are we, are we railing against God? Are we, are we saying, God, I'm, I'm so annoyed, I'm so angry about this position that you've got me in? Or are we trying to kind of circumvent God's laws? Are we trying to get around this Christian singleness by, 
by marrying somebody who's not a believer? Or are we, or do we have extramarital sex? Or unhealthy emotional connections with people who are not our spouse? So we've got to be careful that we're not trying to circumvent God's laws to get what we want. Or are you desiring singleness because of selfishness? Do you want the career? Don't want to be tied down. I want my personal space. I want things to be the way I want them. Or are you seeking Christian singleness because you want to be wholly devoted to God? Do you want to be unhindered in your pursuit of God's kingdom? And I encourage you that if that's where you're at, or regardless of where you're at, we need to talk to each other and communicate where we're at so that people can be aware, people can help us. And if you are pursuing Christian singleness, the last thing you want is your friends trying to set you up with, with somebody. So you know, we need to, we need to be aware of where each other is at and support each other. But I even want to push in with, a, with the married people. Are you kind of falling into the trap of thinking, oh, it was it's better in the good old days when I was single? Are you, are you, are you, do you want to kind of shirk your responsibilities? For the single life. Or perhaps are you a married person who is trying to pressure your friends into getting married? Are you trying to push them into the mold of what you think they should be like? You've got to be aware of these things. And I, and I want you to own up to it. If you've got a friend that you've been pushing and you need to go and tell them and say sorry and, 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 and not own up to it just to the people that you might have been pushing, but maybe own, not maybe, but definitely own up to it to God and tell him where you're at. Tell others what you're going through if you're in this in these situations. It's okay. So I want to bring it all together. Society tells us that we ought to go for the benefits of marriage, like love and sex, without the restraints of marriage, like responsibilities to care for one another and, and raise kids and look after each other. You know, the movies portray marriage as almost useless because the singles are all doing the same things that married people are supposed to do. But God's design is not to try and have the best of both worlds, to have the free and unhindered lifestyle of the single while getting all the benefits of marriage. No, you you have to pick one or the other. There's benefits to both, and there's nothing wrong with choosing one over the other. If you seek the benefits of singleness... Embrace it, and, and, and Paul says you're going to do much better because of it. But if you want to go for marriage, then go all in and fulfill your responsibilities there. Each estate has its benefits, and trying to mix and match will only end in disaster. But Christian singleness is an honourable and God-pleasing option for life. We should encourage each other to pursue our call with zeal. It's so easy to, to kind of celebrate the weddings and the relationships, but we also need to celebrate purity and chastity for God's sake. It's worthy of encouragement and celebration. Now, if you're in the midst of these circumstances, I encourage you, as I've been saying, to talk to one another, but, you know, go and, go and do some research. Go and, go and read. Um, help you to help you deal with some of the things that you might be going through. I we have this book on the shelf that Laura recommends, which is called The Heart of Singleness: How to Be Single and Satisfied. There's there's websites out there where you can go and read um, and get encouragement and and teaching on on the single life. Um, one of the ones that comes to mind is Revive Our Hearts by Nancy Lee DeMoss. Yes, I got that right. Good. 
Um, I'm, I'm sure there's articles on the Gospel Coalition website which would be helpful in thinking through these things, but also come and talk to us so that we can, we can share and help each other. Study the, the all-surpassing worth of Christ. Study the, the chapter that we've just looked through and see how it's going to play out in your life. So as, as I come to this close, I want to remind us that Christ is king. He's king of our marital estate. Whatever the issue that we're facing, the all-surpassing worth of Christ should affect any decision we make. It's not just about relationships. Uh, serving Christ should affect the way that we that we that we what clothes we choose to wear, what food we choose to eat, not just who we marry or what job to take. Whatever we do, we must use our life and our choices to glorify God. We're seeking to make Christ known to the world and, and mimicked in our lives. And that will mean sometimes we get our heart's desires and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we have to forego our desires for the sake of Christ. And God will lead us through the trial that we're in. He's not unaware of your state. He's not unsympathetic. In fact, Christ himself walked the earth as a single man who experienced the emotions and desires that you have. Yet fruitfulness in the Holy Spirit and the multiplication of his spiritual children overrode his earthly desires. So I want you to consider where you're at. I want you to own up to it and tell God where you're at. If you need to repent of something, repent and tell other people what you're going through. But I want you to seek to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Christ is worth the loss of anything that this life could give to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've been talking about this this tough issue that affects our lives, affects your people. We thank you, Lord, that uh, that this is that singleness is a is a God honoring and honourable. An honourable and God-honouring way to do life. We pray, Lord, that wherever we're at, that you would help us to to um, to to seek to serve you with everything that we have. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to support and encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ who are going through this and at different places than we're at. Please, Lord, help us not to impose our own um, pressures on others but help us to only encourage people um, to serve you to the best of their capacity. Um, Lord, where we have hurt other people with our words, Lord, where we have, um, where we have uh, fallen into the traps on either side, we pray, Lord, that you would convict us and help us to repent for the way in which we have behaved. But we pray, Lord, that through, through uh, working through these things, we might be able to glorify Christ. We pray, Lord, that the that the, 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 the being able to know Christ would make everything else pale in insignificance. We pray, Lord, that, that you would be the center, that you would be the goal, that you would be the place where we want to go. And we pray, Lord, that um, wherever we're at, that you would help us to achieve that um, through our place in life. Help us to live as we are called. Amen.